please open with me in your Bibles, if you haven't yet already, to the book of Titus. Titus is in the New Testament. It's in the latter part of your Bibles. I know some are, are relatively new, and some are old, and you know right where it is, but there's others that don't, so uh, follow along. It's in the, we're in the book of Titus. We are concluding our series entitled Setting Us Straight, and we've been in here for the last several weeks going through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus, who was a pastor on the island of Crete. And he's telling and instructing Titus to set things straight. We've talked about that in the last several weeks. We've talked about being set straight on leadership and what it means to have leaders within the church. We've, we've been set straight on the roles of men and women and older women and younger women and older men and younger women. Uh, younger men, and we've also talked about what it means to behave in our jobs and how we are to conduct ourselves. And we've also learned about grace, and we've learned about regeneration and what it means to be saved. We've learned about all these things, and now we're coming to the end of our time. And Paul puts these these last few verses. We're going to be at the end of chapter three, going through twelve through fifteen, and. Sometimes we, we read this and there's just some names that we're unfamiliar with that we're going to read about and details that we just have a tendency to skip over. But you know, the old saying, the devil's in the details, right? But here I hope to see that it's not the devil in the details, but it's the Lord in the details. And here we need to pay attention what Paul is saying to Titus and these details that are here because when we look at the details... We are drawn into the story in a way that we couldn't have otherwise been if we just would have skipped over it. To find out who these people are that Titus is talking to and find out what it is that he's talking about. So hopefully you've already turned with me to the book of Titus, chapter 3. We'll be reading this last section here where Paul is literally saying to him, I've told you all these things, but before I go, I want to give you these last bit of instructions. It's like with myself and my wife, when we go out and we have someone taking care of our kids, we said, but before we go, we have a couple things we want to tell you. And they're very important things that we leave with those that are taking care of our kids. And Paul is writing to Titus, before I leave, there's a couple things I want to leave with you. So it is our custom here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the honor of reading God's Word. So I would ask you please to stand with me. Hopefully you have a Bible and you can follow along with me. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, writes to Titus, verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence grateful that you have given us this letter for our benefit, that we might be set straight, that we might know how to live lives that are holy and righteous in your sight, that you might receive glory. Lord, please open wide our hearts today that we might see the truth within your word, that we might apply it to our lives and go forth walking closer to you and finding the joy that you have purposed us to have in you. So Lord, I pray that you totally remove any layers of unbelief 
Lord, help us not to be distracted, but to be wholly concentrated and focused on your word that you might receive honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So let's jump right into this. First, we're going to see these names, and I would encourage you to follow along with me. We have these names, Artemis, Tychicus. Now, it is uh, in Apollos and Zenos the lawyer. We have these different names given to us, and we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Paul, his char- Paul, remember, he's the author of several New Testament, what we call epistles, which means letters. And Paul is very personable in his instructions, especially how he ends his letters. He often uses names, and he talks about different people. And we see that, basically, what we see through that is that people matter to God. Did you know that? People matter to God. You matter to God. God created you in His image. He formed you, and He desires to impart His life to you through His Son. That's amazing. People matter to God. It's amazing to me when I think about the worst person I can think of. I I, I can just think of the worst person and to think that God would still send His Son to that person that I consider worthless, a loser, lost, completely rebellious, that's not worth my time. God says, no, he's worth my time. I would still send my son for him. So that is a reminder to us that people matter to God and people should matter to us. All too often in our relationship with God, we think about my quiet time or my walk with God. And yet those are important things. But God, it's not just the vertical relationship with God that is important, but it's our horizontal relationship. It's two sides of the same coin. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second commandment is like, the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor. Yeah, to love our neighbor. So we're seeing here that it's people matter to God. That's the first point that Paul wants us to understand that people matter to God. I think of different verses where this truth is drawn out. As Jesus said, he said, why, in Luke chapter 12, verse 7, he says, why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. He said, even the hairs of your head are numbered. For some of you, that doesn't take a lot to count. But he's saying, I even know the hairs on your head. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 says, The Lord knows those who are His. He knows your name. You think about that? Someone knows your name? I'm amazed at that. I, I think of the, the children's uh, Pixar movie, Cars. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Because I, I have small children. I see every Pixar film imaginable. And more than I could ever care to think about. But in this film, there's this one uh, character who's this rusted car, and he has his name on the front of his, his bumper, uh, it, on his license plate, and every time one of the name characters come by, he says his name, and the guy freaks out. He's like, he knows my name! He knows my name! And the reality is they don't. They just were reading the license plate. But did you know that God, though, he does know our name? I mean, think about someone famous, or maybe we could think about the President of the United States, we could think about even Billy Graham were to come in and say, hey, Ralph, how are you doing? Like, Wow. Ralph knows Billy Graham. Something along that line. And that's so infinitesimal compared that God knows your name. He knows your name. That's amazing to think about. So we can see that people matter 
to God. And we can see this in Paul's relationships. That's the first point under number one. And if you're following along in your notes, letter A, we can see that people matter to God in Paul's relationships. He says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to spend Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. You can see this, this, these relationships that he has are very important, and they're all about the kingdom of God. We can see through Paul's relationships that people matter to God. But now let's try to draw out these relationships. Who are these individuals? First, we have Artemis. Now, we don't know much about him. This is the only mention of Artemis in the entirety of the New Testament. But all we know is he was probably, like Tychicus, uh, one of Paul's trusted assistants. Now, what do we know about this guy named Tychicus? Tychicus. Well, he was from the province of Asia, Acts chapter 20, verse 4. And according to, to other sources, mentions of his name in Paul's writing, he was a beloved brother, faithful minister, whom Paul sent to encourage the church at Ephesus and Colossae and Crete. And he was probably even going to replace Titus at Crete. And Paul's saying that he was sending Tychicus to Crete, and once he arrived, Titus was instructed to do his best to meet Paul and Nicopolis. In other words, he's coming to replace him so Titus can be free to meet Paul at Nicopolis. Next we have this guy named Zenus the Lawyer. I like Zenus the lawyer. It's the only time in the entirety of the New Testament that a lawyer is ever mentioned. I have a buddy of mine. He's a lawyer. Every time he calls, I'm like, what's up, Zenus? Just because it's the only mention of it. It's it's funny. He mentions Zenus the lawyer. Now, we don't know what kind of lawyer it was. It could have been someone who was an expert in Roman law, or it could have been someone who was an expert in Mosaic law. But he just says, do your best to spend uh, speed Zenus the lawyer to me. He's a friend of Paul. We don't know anything else about him except he is a lawyer and the only lawyer ever mentioned in the entirety of the New Testament. But next we come to a guy that we are given a lot of information about, a guy named Apollos. Now, Apollos, he's, he's found within different parts of Scripture, and he was a pretty amazing guy. He was a leader in the early church, and according to Acts 18.24, he was a Jew. He was a native of Alexandria in Egypt, which was a center for learning in the ancient world. I got to go to Alexandria uh, a few years ago, and it was known for its famous lighthouse at the time, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, as well as its library, which was amazing. I mean, it was the greatest library in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, they're trying to, they have built a brand new library, state-of-the-art, because they want to have, again, the greatest library in the modern world. So it's a center for learning. It's also a center for a Jewish population. The Jewish translation of the Old Testament was actually done in Alexandria. We call that uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, we call the Septuagint. All right, And this was done there. So here's this guy named uh, Apollos, and we learn about him that he was a great leader. Matter of fact, he was speaking at Ephesus about Jesus, but all he knew at the time was the baptism of John. And Aquila and Priscilla were so amazed, this early couple that had come out of Rome, they were tent makers, they were also companions of Paul, were so amazed at this brilliant preacher that they pulled him alongside and it says they explained the way of God more clearly. I mean, this guy went to the church at Corinth and was such an amazing teacher that half the church started following him and said, hey, I follow Apollos. If you remember that in the book of Corinthians, uh, Paul even says kind of rhetorically, some say, I follow Paulos or I follow Paul. He goes, who are these guys? They're just servants through whom you believe. We might look at it as this. I'm a fan of, in, in contemporary uh, language, I'm a fan of John Piper or I'm a fan of, of uh, John MacArthur or I'm a fan of whoever, fill in the details. That's what was going on in the church of Corinth. 
So Apollos was this great and amazing leader and teacher, preacher within the early church. So we have a lot about him. Now he says, I'm, uh, he mentions the city of Nicopolis. He says, I'm going to spend the winter in Nicopolis. Now it's a place uh, on the western coast of Greece, uh, and then he wanted to spend the winter there because during winter it was almost impossible to travel. I don't know if you've seen what's going on in New England right now. I lived in New England. I lived on a port city in New England, a town called Gloucester. And my first winter there, actually my first week there, my, no, first month, we received 29 inches of snow. I mean, it was crazy just seeing it. The, it and the waves crashing in and the tide coming in and out. And it makes it travel almost impossible, even for modern sailors. But back then, I can't imagine how bad it was. That's why Paul's saying, I'm, I'm going to do my best to spend the winter there. I'm going to camp down, and I'm going to have my base of operations out of Nicopolis for the winter. And I need you guys to come to me so we can strategize on missions and how to reach all these different people that God has desired us to reach. So we can see that God cares for these people. And we can see that in Paul's relationships. We can also see that in his personal request. Look at verse 13. He says, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Now, the word here, lepo, means to fall short, be destitute, to be in need. It pictures one uh, not possessing something which is necessary. It means to be deficient in something that ought to be present for whatever reason. It's used six times uh, in different translations, especially within the New American Standard. In Luke chapter 18, verse 22, it says, When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So Jesus defines the one thing that hindered the rich man from a life of discipleship. The, the things he had were the reason he lacked. Or Titus 1.5, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains. It's a different term there. It's meaning he's falling short. He has to set what's left because he lacks all the other essential ingredients. Or James 1.4-5, uh, he says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Or James 2.15, if a brother or sister is without, lacks clothing and in need of daily food. See, Paul's saying, I care about these guys. I'm sending them to you. And I, I want you to supply anything that they lack, any needs that they have. I want you to take care of their needs. So Paul is, he cares about the people he works with. He cares about his brothers and sisters in Christ. The question that I have for us is this, do we? Do we? Do we care about the people that we worship with? You know, one of the indictments of the modern evangelical Christian church is that there's a great deal of anonymity. There's a lot of megachurches in our area. And I, I don't mean to fault the megachurches. God's using them. They have a purpose within His plan. But many people are attracted to those churches because they can come in and come out and have no accountability. They want complete anonymity. And for some, they need that for a period of time as God is working with them. But here the reality is, is that when we really, truly worship Christ, we're going to develop these and forge these intimate bonds with one another that we, when we lack, our brother and sister lacks. Meaning that we feel the need so greatly that we want to help. Are we willing to do that? See, I get the impression that many of us, and not all, but there are many, 
within our body that we come to church, we worship, and that's enough. We have no connection with any other brothers and sisters outside of the worship service. We say hello, we shake hands, but there is no intimate community sharing of true life together. We are so busy putting on facades and pretending that we are, have it all together, putting on the drama mask where we all have a smile and not intimately sharing our struggles, our sins, our difficulties, the problems, the trials, the temptations of our life. And see here, Paul knew them so well. He knew that they were going to be struggling, that they lacked something. And he says to, this, he says to Titus, I want you to help them. Now the question I have for us is, are we willing to help our brothers and sisters? Are we living in such close community with one another as the body of Christ that we can share our pains and our struggles? My wife received uh, an email message last night from a very close friend of hers who's in Australia. And uh, she's going through a very hard time right now. Uh, her husband's in the military. Uh, he's... He's coming home and he's angry. Matter of fact, he's so angry that it's causing her children to be scared. She's struggling. She's going to church. She just had another baby. It's, it's a tumultuous time in their household. She doesn't know if her husband's going to come home. He's going to be loving. He's going to be angry. And she feels isolated from everybody. And she goes, I go to church. And the first question they ask me is, is basically, where have you been? Not like, how are you? And she said, here, I haven't been here for a few weeks. I just had a baby. And that's the first question you ask? She goes, I don't feel like I can share my life with anybody in the church. And, I, and she goes, my closest friend, she works at a pregnancy center. She goes, my closest friend is at an abortion clinic. She goes, we don't share in the same view, but she actually, I know she cares for me. And when I get, I'm with her, I feel like she cares. But when I'm with sometimes the body of Christ, I feel like they could care less. Now, I hope that's not true. I hope that she's misreading it. I really do. But it's an indictment. I think we all need to examine ourselves and say, are we caring for one another? Do we really have love for one another? And I know there are some here that truly do, that you bleed for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You will give the shirt off your back. But there are others, you're, you just have this hedge, a wall around you that you won't let others in because you are so fearful of what people are going to think about you because you've constructed an image, you've constructed an idol. And we have to smash that idol. I'm reminded of the story when Jesus was getting ready, ready to wash Peter's feet. He says, no, Lord, you shall not wash my feet. He says, unless I wash you, you shall have no part with me. In reality, Jesus says, if I can't have all of you, I want the worst, the dirtiest. I want all of you. Unless you give me all of you, you don't get any of me. See, God wants all of us, not only for himself, but we give ourselves to the body. Now, it doesn't mean you, sin, you share every sin with everyone, but you need to find some that you can share your inmost struggles with, your temptations, your trials. Be in community with one another. It goes beyond Sunday morning. So we can see in his personal request that he cares for people. Let's continue on. What else can we see? Let's look at verse 14 together. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Let's break this down a bit. He says, our people. 
Now, these aren't just his buddies. These are the converts uh, in Crete that have come to know Christ. He says, let our people. He's even showing ownership. There are people, not just your people, but there are people. We are one church. There are people. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Now, Paul wants them to be, uh, to be in the pattern for a healthy ministry. See, what, hap- what he's doing here is he's showing him a pattern of healthy ministry. We're going to draw that out here. What does it mean to uh, have a pattern of healthy ministry? What does that look like? See, Paul, what he's doing here is he's saying, I want you to have an ongoing ministry that is healthy, but it's ongoing education. Because we have to ask ourselves the question, what makes a healthy ministry? And Paul's saying here, the first thing is, is ongoing education, learning. He says, and let our people learn to devote themselves. Learn. The word learn uh, refers to intentional learning by inquiry and observation. It means genuinely understanding and accepting a teaching as true and applying it to one's life, to making it a part of us. Now, Paul uses the present imperative It's a command, which indicates that this instruction is mandatory and needs to be the church's lifestyle. That's what he's saying. So it's the church's lifestyle. And he he desires and commands for the believers in Crete to continually keep learning how to do the following actions. We must learn how to devote ourselves to good works. Now, how do we do that? Where do we begin? Well, first of all, we begin with the Word of God, looking at God. How does God give Himself for us? We don't begin with ourselves, although that's part of it. We begin with knowing God, which means knowing His Word, and then we look at ourselves as through the mirror or the lens of God's Word. Because, see, what we see in the Word of God, we find out where we struggle. See, the old ancient Greek uh, philosopher, Socrates, said, um, know thyself, right? So that's kind of the beginning of everything else. I disagree. It's know God. And through God, we see and know ourselves. Because if we start off with just knowing ourselves, we start off imperfectly. But if we start off with God, we see the perfect, and we see ourselves, how how short we do fall. So we learn how to devote ourselves by finding out who God is and finding out where our deficiencies are, where it is that we struggle, the sins that we have, and how we, through the cross, overcome those sins. See, every one of us has a sin nature, a fallen sin nature, and we all struggle with different kinds of sins. I know that you might struggle with the sin differently than I do, but I do know this. Everyone in this room struggles with something. You have a sin that is the you hate you despise, and you go back to it again and again and again. But Jesus talks about how we become overcomers through the cross of Christ. We must learn how to be overcomers as the Spirit of God is at work within us and bring us to an awareness of where we struggle, when we fall. Did you ever look at this, ever try to outline your sin on a graph? What I mean by that is this. When do you fall? What are the circumstances around your fall? What helped lead you to that fall? And I, I guarantee you that you will notice a pattern. You will notice a pattern. I noticed in my own life, there were certain days that I struggled with my sin. Once I identified that, I was able to, develop, to build a plan to fight against it. I had to know what, where I was weakest and then construct a defense plan, a strategy 
with God through His Word on how to counteract that. See, we do the same thing in learning to devote ourselves. We become aware of where we are deficient, but we also find out where it is that we have joy and our passions and our spiritual giftedness. And then when we learn that, we say, okay, I want to use these gifts for God's glory. I want to take what I have learned about myself now and then apply it because God has made me to do this and I want to find out how I can do it. If you find out that you're a runner, you want to be able to learn to run fast. Find where you're good at. Find what it is that you were made to be, what God has made you to do. So Paul is saying we must, the people must learn to devote themselves, which he, and that involves an ongoing education. We must continually be learning his word, learning who he is, and also finding out where we are. And once we find out that, I mean, we're going to, and it's a lifelong journey, by the way, we learn, we know our initial sins, and then once we learn to, to defeat those sins through the cross of Christ, we find out that there's even deeper sins. You ever come to that conclusion? We think to ourselves, oh, if I just conquer that sin, we conquer that sin, we find out that there was something that's even worse that was below that, that went even deeper. So we continually come back and are honed in our Christian walk as we submit ourselves to Christ and read His Word and we are transformed. We learn as we go. Now that doesn't mean we're going to know everything and then we pick it all out. Sometimes we just learn by doing. I mean, I can read all about riding a bicycle, but the fact is, i got to get on the bike. See, at, at, when I was a student in college, they would put us in different ministries. And they wanted to, to try you out. And you had to be in ministry while you were a student. We called this a practical Christian ministry. And I remember getting into ministry going, I don't, I'm not gifted for that. And then I found out that I was. And it wasn't only by doing it. It was my, my fear popping up. But when I got into that ministry, I started learning, hey, I'm good at this. So we, it's an ongoing education. We learn as we continually try it out. And you know what? I think many of us have a fear of failure. We have a giant fear of failure. We try it. It doesn't work. We give up. We try it one time, and it doesn't work. You know what? It's, it's, and I hate to say this. I mean, I'm going to say this, and I, I'm saying it, and I hope you understand the context in which I'm saying it. It's okay to fail. The important thing is, is learn from your failures. As I, my daughter's playing a game and, and she gets really down and she started to, to cry because she kept messing up again. And I said, honey, it's okay. Keep trying. It's okay to fail. Just as long as you learn from it. And you might make the same mistake over and over and over again, but you know what? God's grace is greater. Isn't that amazing that God's grace is greater, that it's there for us? So we have this idol of perfection that I have to do it. It has to get done it, and, and it has to be perfect. And if it fails, then oh. We throw up our hands and we don't want to do it anymore. It's okay to fail. And trying out different ministries and learning where God has us. We're going to fall off the bicycle, but the important matter is get on the bike again. And you'll get better at it. So Paul is not only talking about an ongoing education. That's not just the one that's the first step in, in having a pattern of healthy ministry. It also involves an all-consuming devotion. An all-consuming devotion. He says, learn to devote. Now, the NKJV, the New King James Version, says engage. And it literally means to stand before. And figuratively, as in the present context, conveys the idea to give attention, to pay very close attention. And Paul here uses the present tense, which calls for this to be their habitual practice, with the middle voice calling for their personal involvement in this. We must all learn to devote. We learn to devote 
ourselves to do what is good. Are you devoted? I mean, what are you devoted to? How about that? We all have something we're devoted to. It could be a hobby. I mean, I'm amazed. And Reuben and I were talking about this last week. He mentioned this to me. You know, I had Bears jersey on, and don't talk to me about the Bears game. But uh, I like sports. We've talked about this in our, our ABF downstairs. And uh, Reuben had mentioned this. Not only uh, I like sports, but I have to be aware of the place of sports in life. I mean, I, it could be for anything. It could be music. It could be whatever hobby that you have. And we were talking about the, I like ancient history. And we were talking about the fall of the ancient Rome. And one of the factors that contributed to the fall of Rome was their preoccupation for sports. They became unhealthy. And I, I'm glad he said that to me. Right as I said, this, I looked at Ruben, I was like, you pick this Sunday to say that as I'm wearing a Bears jersey right before I walk up there. But it was a good reminder to keep it in check. And we have to ask ourselves that question. As parents, especially in today's world, you know what? The unbelieving world could care less about your faith and will schedule anything to coincide with Sunday morning. And I'm being very honest and very blunt. But like I said before, you can get your kid on the cover of Sports Illustrated and be a Hall of Famer and damn their soul to hell. What is the most important legacy you want to leave for your kids? And I'm asking all of us that. Don't keep them away from the people of God on a Sunday morning. Please. Well, I want my kid to have this future. You want him to know who Jesus is. That's the most important thing. And other than that, you are promoting an idol of idolatry. I'm, I'm all for sports. But if it coincides with our walk with God, you have to ask yourself the question, is it an idol? Is it an idol? We should have an all-consuming devotion to Jesus. Not to our favorite sports team. I mean, I'm amazed. When I was in New England, I mean, I thought Cubs fans were bad. Red Sox fans are just nuts. I mean, they literally bleed Red Sox and sports. And it's like there was a, a film a few years ago with Drew Barrymore, and they, it was about the Red Sox. And, and they asked a, a boyfriend, I can't remember what his name is, uh, I think it was Jimmy Kimmel. They said, You know, what's your favorite thing in the world? He said, Breathing in the Red Sox. <laughs> Something along that line. Some of us are that way, though, with our sports. And you could fill that in with anything, not just sports. Entertainment, it can be drug, it can be food. We, are, we can be devoted to food. It could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be sex, it could be education itself. It could be whatever you want it to be. I mean, as, as we've talked about before, and John Calvin, the great theologian, uh, uh, French theologian in Switzerland, he, he said, our hearts are idle factories. We can make anything an idol. Even ministry. Even ministry. But Paul's saying, I do want you to have an all-consuming devotion. Let our people learn to devote themselves to Jesus first. Everything else falls second. Even family. Even family. Now, we are pro-family and for-family. But if it, your family is exalted above Christ, that too can be an idol. So we have to exalt Christ over everything, an all-consuming devotion to Christ, and that pours out into every other aspect of our lives. So an all-consuming devotion, that's what Paul wants us to understand. And also, a daily participation. A daily participation. 
Look at verse 14 again. And let our people learn to devote themselves to, to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. See, it's an ongoing thing. Let our people learn to. What we saw was these, these present imperatives, and they're habitual. It's a daily thing, a daily participation in the lives of others. That's what it means. In the lives of others. What does that mean? Well, it means, again, being in community with one another. That we can assess where others are in need, or we are in need ourselves. But being together. Are we truly being together? Are we truly being vulnerable with one another? It's an ongoing thing. Helping cases of urgent need, which means that we become part of the solution. A godly solution. A godly solution. We are helping people out. I remember... I don't know how many within our fellowship here have been involved in social work. I remember talking with a grad student uh, who was in social work, and we came to the conclusion in our discussion that if the church did its job, social workers wouldn't be needed. Think about that. If the church was doing its job, we have started handing off things to the government, and we should be taking care and be known of helping people in the times of the distress. And, and the church has done that within the ancient world. And also in the modern world. I think of Mother Teresa. These, jolt, these little babies that are being abandoned or these girls in prostitution coming alongside with these people that are forgotten. Helping cases of urgent need. And Paul is even talking about their cases of urgent need. These people have needs. Be a part of the solution. How can we help be a part of the solution? That's a pattern of healthy ministry. Solving the needs of our community. What are the needs of our community? Where does the church need to step in? We need to go beyond the walls. Learn to devote themselves to good works. The idea is doing works that are good within society, helping people with cases of urgent needs. so They might see Christ in us. Or as Matthew chapter 5 says, that people might see the works that we're doing and give glory to the Father in heaven because of what we are doing for Christ. But let's continue on. Let's look at verse 15. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. I'd like us to see here, in these, and what Paul, I believe, is telling us, is there are some principles here that should motivate us. Principles that should motivate us in verse 15. He says here, all who are with me send greetings to you, with me. Greet those who love us in the faith. See, what Paul is talking about here is having close fellowship with others. See, they're together, doing life together. Do we do life together? I have to say that I've been here about two years in fellowship with with you, and I've gotten involved in these small groups, and I have to say, my small group, I, I don't know what your small groups are like, but my small group, put it in uh, my terminology, <laughs> is you rock my face off. <laughs> You're a great group of people. And I, I've been impressed with you because you share your life and your struggles and vulnerability, and I hope your, your groups are like that because without that cl- close fellowship, I don't know where I'd be. I need that. And I need it. that's why I, I enjoy my group so much. And I, I think some of them would stand up here and tell you how amazing just to be a part of it. I mean, we laugh together. We eat a lot together. Uh, we laugh a lot. They laugh at me a lot together. Uh, we spend a great deal of time together. But we're doing life together. And we're, but the more that we spend time together, the more that we can be vulnerable with one another. And if somebody is struggling, we know. 
because we're doing life together. You know, it's, you could come on Sunday morning and you could put on a face for an hour, an hour and a half, but when you're in a group and everybody's talking and it's an intimate setting, it's really hard. You can do it for a while, but if you continually come, it's gonna, you're going to have a harder time doing it, and we're going to speak into your life. And, we'll, and they'll challenge. They'll challenge me. I'll challenge them, and we're doing life together. See, that's why Paul says, those who are with me send greetings. We're together. Are we as a body together? Are you involved in close community with other believers? Are you? Are you involved in a small group? We're starting up a new series next week on Sunday morning. Uh, the, the new small group series kicks off tonight. I would encourage you to be a part of a group, to do life together. Small group leaders, I hope that you guys, you guys are creating an environment where people experience that vulnerability and that transformational change. And you can do life together. Invest in one another's life. See, Paul is saying that there's some principles that should motivate us that are here. There's, close, there's a close fellowship that he has that he wants us to be a part of. And last of all, last of all, folks, verse 15. Greet those who love us in the faith. And this, this, these last five words, grace be with you all. You know, it all comes back to grace. It all comes back to grace. I wrote about this this morning in the tool shed. It all comes back to grace. Did you know that almost every New Testament epistle begins with greetings of grace? I think all, all, all of Paul's do. Every single one of them begins with grace. And matter of fact, almost all of them end with grace. It doesn't talk about love, doesn't talk about peace, doesn't talk about faith, ends with grace. Why? Because it all comes back to grace. No matter how bad we mess up, God's grace extends to us. Greatest passage, one of the greatest passages in Scripture is from Romans 5. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. No matter how bad we've been, God's grace abounds. That's why even when we're struggling, we call out. That's what, as Paul did, he says, God, I'm struggling. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Grace it all comes back to grace. He says, grace be with you all. He says, we have Christ's favor. That's the last point that I want us to take home. It, it's about Christ. We already have Christ's favor because we've trusted in him because of what Jesus has done. And when we place ourselves under him, it's not dependent upon us any longer. It's about him. I mean, grace is scandalous. It is. If you think of the concept of grace, it is scandalous because it gets people off that don't deserve it. That's why it's called God's unmerited favor. But like we've talked about several times before, as many of us, we try to earn our salvation, earn God's approval, while continually going through ministry, thinking that we are earning God's blessing. We already have it in Christ. We already have it. See, Paul wants us to, to leave Titus with this thought in the church. Grace be with you all. Even when you mess up, even when you sin, even when you disobey, and when you're repentant, God's grace is there. I mean, we can't exhaust God's grace. You're never going to get an NSF, non-sufficient funds, in God's grace. Never. You'll never get that letter back, by the way, you've overdrawn. Never. God's grace is greater that's the last thought that he wants to communicate to us. He set us straight on so many other things. He set us straight on 
roles of men and women, on leadership, on elders, on salvation. And he begins his thought with grace, and then he ends with grace. Because it is grace that transforms, for it is by grace you have been saved. And remember in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for it is the grace of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness. See, it's grace. It's God's do-over. God's mulligan. He allows us to do it again and again because of grace. Because it's not dependent upon us. So even after we set straight, even when we fail to set things straight, even when we fail to obey, when we are repentant and we come to Him in godly sorrow, God forgives us if we confess our sins and He extends grace. We have the unmerited favor of God because of what He has done in Christ. And that grace only became available because of what Jesus Christ did. And if you are here today, and if you have not trusted in Him for salvation, then His grace is even available to you. For all who come to Him in faith, He will by no means cast out. We simply need to call on Him and He extends grace and He says, I forgive you. I forgive you and I will transform you, and I will make you into a trophy of my grace for the world to see. We're all trophies of grace, are we not? I like how John MacArthur's radio program starts off, portraits of grace. In some way, we are all portraits of grace, creations of grace, His grace being written on our hearts. I pray that every one of us can be that way, that all of us can bask in grace as we continually do life together, as we continually follow His word, Remember, God's grace extends to the lowliest of the low, and no matter where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Let's close our message time with a word of prayer. We have a couple of announcements and things we'd like to do. Our Father and our God, you've given us your words and set us straight on so many things. Lord, as a body of believers, we know how quickly we mess up. We know how badly we sin. We know where we struggle. We know the idols in our lives. Uh, we know how we can put on the masks and uh, the difficult sins that we go back to again and again and again. And yet, Lord, we know that your grace extends. That no matter how far we go, your grace extends even further and is available to us. We cannot, cannot exa- exhaust your account of grace. Lord, I, I think of the, the hymn, the old hymn that we sang part of today about your amazing grace knowing that it is your grace that saves us, your, it is your grace that sanctifies us, and as, the, as that old hymn says, and it will be grace that leads us home. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know who you are, that they might trust in you, that they might call out to you, because we know that all those whom you call out to, you will save, that you will transform them, you will forgive their sins, and you will extend grace to them. And Lord, we pray that you might work and continue to work within our body, that we might experience grace as we are living in community with one another and close fellowship, as we see how people matter to you. Lord, even how you concluded this letter and how you've arranged even those names to be remembered for all eternity, you know our names. You know every act that we do, and you don't forget us. Lord, may we truly be operative trophies of grace that people might see your presence within us and be drawn to the Savior accordingly. So Lord, we ask your blessing on the rest of this day and on the week as follows. May we truly walk and live in grace to the honor and glory of your great and precious name. We pray, amen.